Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Ball Guy podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, Chris LaSpada. Hi, everybody. This is Jeff Brown, the Ball Guy. Today, we're going to be talking with Chris LaSpada, one of my two elite tax experts. How you doing, Chris? Good. How you doing, Jeff? So far, it's sunny in San Diego, man. Well, today, uh, we're going to try to talk real estate, and I'll just start out with the first question. When your clients, Chris, invest in residential income property, what's generally the most common deduction they seem to miss on their tax return? Typically, I think the most common ones are mileage. I think a lot of times clients aren't used to tracking their mileage for you know, what they've done for the property. So, for example, if they are, you know, do-it-yourselfers and they're, you know, repairing the property or doing any property-related business, they're probably not keeping track of their miles. So, and with the mileage rate of, it varies every year, but, you know, it's been around 56, 56 and a half cents. I mean, you could have some deductions there that are definitely being missed. The other one that I think is probably a little bit aggressive, but when we have clients that are, we're just preparing a 1044, a lot of times we justify putting our fee on the Schedule E because we're sort of making the argument that the reason they're coming to us for our expertise is because they do have a residential rental property and now the return is now too difficult for them to do themselves. So a lot of times we'll take our fee on the Schedule E uh, based off of that thought process. The other things that, I mean, we typically give out is, you know, we'll give out a sheet of common expenses and ask the clients to fill them out. So a lot of times that does allow clients to realize that there's more expenses they could have taken than they might have initially provided. I mean, one of them that we always know that's there that may not be given to us on the first round of information is the insurance on the property. So if the insurance is escrowed, a lot of times when we get to 1098, we'll have the real estate taxes and we'll have the interest, but not all 1098s will list the insurance. So a lot of times we're going back. That's probably one of our common things is we're going back and asking them for the insurance expense on the property. Perfect. I love those answers, man. Would you please talk about kitchen appliances and washers and dryers as it relates to a much shorter than 27-and-a-half-year depreciation, usually like about a five-year timeline? Yeah, typically they're five years. And, then, in fact, it's funny you asked that second because that probably could also be used as an answer for number one. I think sometimes clients forget about the things that they're buying for the property that are more a fixed asset in nature. So sometimes we do have to ask that too. Like, hey, make sure you're giving us your improvements and fixed assets that you're buying for the property as well because, again, that's, you know, part of your basis that you can take for depreciation. But as far as the appliances go, yeah, they typically have a five-year life. The other thing that can happen too is they are eligible for bonus depreciation. So while typically appliances aren't that high of a dollar amount, you can accelerate the depreciation on them by taking the bonus depreciation. So if you're eligible to take a rental loss and you want to try to take more depreciation in the first year, you can do that. If you're not eligible to take the rental loss, then 
and then it's mixed on as to you just opt out of the bonus. Does it really have an effect on uh, which way you do it in that first year? Right. Okay, cool. What's your take, Chris, on not including depreciated appliances in the sales price but passing it on to the buyer at zero dollars, basically because they've held it for five years or more and they've depreciated that five-year asset down to zero? Right. I mean, typically what we generally see is when a property is sold, you know, we generally, unless we have any information to the contrary, is – We'll put everything on the depreciation schedule as being sold with the same code and lump everything in together according to what the settlement sheet shows as the selling price. But what you're asking about is because depreciation is recaptured at the time of uh, when you sell the property, one interesting thought is to, to avoid the recapture on the appliances that you would sell them separately with a separate bill of sale for a very nominal dollar amount, so then you don't run into the recapture. So, which you could save on that, I guess it depends on how many assets and the amounts that has been depreciated over the years. Obviously, if you have a longer-term ownership of a property, that can be a little bit different. But, you know, again, it's, it's, it's something that could potentially save a couple bucks. And anything that can save money, I guess, if you take the time to get the proper documentation, you should take advantage of it. Most most taxpayers might not go get the separate bill of sale and might not think about doing that. But if you were to be audited, that's the type of paperwork you want to be able to justify why you did what you did. Gotcha. When it comes to selling, Chris, what goes into the decision-making process, whether to sell or not, maybe do a 1031 exchange? or, you know, keeping the property. From your viewpoint, what goes into that process? There's actually quite a number of things that go into that. First thing being, uh, what is the potential capital gain on the sale? So then you can project how much of the proceeds would go to taxes if you were just to proceed with a regular sale. So when I talk about capital gains, you're always talking about capital gain rate. You know, and there's three different capital gain rates depending upon the income that you make. So sometimes the capital gain rates can be different, which if you're in the highest bracket could prevent you or could could sway you into looking into a like-kind exchange. So if you're able to identify a property that you could exchange for it and you're in the highest tax bracket, which means you're paying at the highest capital gains tax rates, that could be a great vehicle to defer tax on. If you're paying tax at 15% capital gain rates and you're not in the highest bracket, you could have the opinion that that's the lowest those rates could be, so you might as well pay the tax now rather than defer the tax. Another issue that comes up is, especially with like-kind exchanges, is you shouldn't just buy something just for the sake of doing the exchange. Sometimes I see clients make the mistake of buying a property because they want to do a like-kind exchange, and then the property that they buy, you know, they either have to put some funds into to rehab 
or maybe it's not as good of a rental property as they thought it would be. There's vacancies. So sometimes I think all they're doing is, yes, they're avoiding the tax, but they're putting other money into it that, you know, they don't necessarily wouldn't have need, needed to do if they just went ahead and paid the tax. Sometimes I think you have to have not paying the tax isn't always a good enough reason for making that decision whether to sell or not. Another factor about selling or, or not selling is, you know, we run into taxpayers that have inherited properties, whether it's buildings, land leases. We have a good example of a land lease. I guess the, uh, I don't know if everybody's heard of Chick-fil-A, but a lot of their deals are land leases. that They're not buying the, the ground that the their restaurants are on. And the reason I bring this up is, some clients have very low basis in these properties, and sometimes they might look at it as, hey, I better dispose of these before I pass away because you know, I don't want my family to have to deal with it, and I can get all this money in. And while it sounds, it sounds like a good plan, the problem is they're going to have a high tax bill to do that. And yep. a lot of times the planning in those situations becomes – telling a client they should, their goal should be to die with ownership of the property so whoever it's left to would get stepped up basis. And now, if that next generation wanted to sell the property, you know, they're doing so relatively tax-free. Right. Um, a lot of times, uh, the people themselves that, who inherited, inherited it also got it uh, at a stepped-up basis, Correct. Right. Well, that's, yeah, that's exactly why I would tell them to hold on to it is because they are getting stepped up basis and it's a great opportunity to avoid paying large capital gains, especially if a taxpayer decided to sell it before they passed. It would, uh, it would just result in a huge tax bill. So a lot of times it's, you know, you can't always avoid that because sometimes there's, there's needs for that cash you know, while the taxpayer is loving. But if you're able to uh, not have to do that, a lot of times the best thing is to do nothing and pass that asset along. Oh, sure. And over the years, I've had, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so clients, Chris, who've inherited income property, small usually, and they got the stepped-up basis treatment. So they were able to sell those things, not uh, suffer from any capital gains taxes to speak of, if any. And then take that cash and spread it out in maybe a, a superior way than it was when they inherited it and go from there. It, it's a real head start for some people. Right. The other factor about selling or not selling, we see this more with vacation properties. You know, being on the East Coast, there's a, you know, we're close to the Delaware and New Jersey beaches, but we also have clients that own property in the Outer Banks, North Carolina, very popular area. Oh, and yeah. one of the things that they deal with in terms of this is, you know, where do they think the market's going to be? So they could have a high-end rental property, beachfront property, and they have to try to make decisions based off of, hey, do they think the market's going to come back? And if it comes back, you know, what is their potential? So there was a case, I guess, in the Outer Banks where I guess, you know, one of the storms hits and – the insurance companies all of a sudden charging outrageous amounts for flood insurance. Well, what mm -hmm. that's done is it's affected the comps in those areas. 
So yeah, you know, you're you're trying to sell a property that now the comps aren't what they should be because of this, and now you have to make a decision of well, hey, will the will the comps improve? Will this you know are they really going to be able to charge me you know, an outrageous amount for flood insurance? You know how you know if you're a longtime owner there, I mean that really puts a wrench in any plans you could you could have to sell a property. Right. Gotcha. Anything to add? The other the other thing that does come up with selling a property is clients some clients get confused on their proceeds as compared to what their gain is. So a client might think that they could be receiving X proceeds and they're going to pay tax on that amount of money. But the the truth of the matter is they're paying tax on the selling price minus their cost, which is adjusted for depreciation. So they could have a gain on the property that when it comes time to calculate their tax, that could be more than the proceeds they receive. And typically that's because maybe they've refinanced the property a couple times along the way. So a lot of times that's another factor that, we try to be careful of is making sure clients know that, okay, you're going to get X proceeds, but, you know, some of that has gone to pay down the debt on the property, and now you could have a tax liability. So maybe you don't want to sell that property, you know, if you're not going to net any cash out of that. Maybe maybe you decide that you want to hold on to it on the chance that there's some appreciation on it. At some point, uh, especially with higher end property, residential, uh, vacation property, you know, when you're talking the difference between selling a property for a million one fifty and a million two, well, fifty thousand dollars seems like a lot of money. With all the closing costs and things like that, I mean, at the end of the day, that probably is not that big of a number to, you know, hold out on selling that property if that's what you're really want to do right gotcha man this has been good really good man you knocked it out of the park today for sure (laughs) thanks that's it for today listeners i really appreciate you coming forth we'll catch you later thanks for listening to the bald guy podcast with jeff brown and our guest chris laspada 